You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We do have our sermon notes available in our Google Drive folder if you would like to access those um, as well. As we continue to work through book of Hebrews, we're coming to the, the very end of this chapter. Last week we saw from Hebrews chapter 11 um, a picture of, of what faith looks like being lived out in the lives of, of human people. Um, we see that in the Old Testament heroes, the recounting of their lives, and we talked about persevering faith not being flawless faith, that the people that are highlighted there certainly had their shortcomings, they were not perfect, but we see them enduring some of the worst circumstances and situations by believing the future promises of God will be fulfilled eventually, while recognizing that God was very active and present in their daily lives currently. Um, and so we see them working through situations, we see them pressing on, we see, we see them enduring, we see them constantly keeping focused on what was to come in the future, and it allowed them to be carried through their current circumstances. And so as we worked through chapter 11 last week, we talked about uh, trusting that God will work his promises in the future, but also trusting that he's working them now, that he's, he's working good for his children. We talked about um, trusting that God created and controls this universe, uh, that biblical worldview that the author highlights as being necessary for us to really live out our faith. We talked about trusting that God exists as he has revealed himself. Um, that we believe that God exists and that he rewards those who, who come to him and who seek him. Um, but we have to believe in the right type of God, the God who, who has revealed himself in certain ways, right? And so uh, Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking at your door. Mormons come knocking at your door. They believe in a different God. They believe that God has revealed himself differently than what we see in his word. And so um, we need to believe that God exists, yes, but we have to believe specifically that he's revealed himself the ways um, that he has revealed himself in his word. Um, we talked about trusting that God is a good God and that he's needed by us. Um, we said specifically uh, that story of Rahab gives us that picture where everybody in Jericho believed in the, the God of Israel. Uh, the difference was is that Rahab wanted the God of Israel, and so she's running to him while everybody else is trying to board up and protect themselves against him, right? Um, and then we kind of worked through uh, the different characters that are mentioned there in chapter 11 and what they demonstrate or tell us about what it means to trust God, that Abel tells us to trust God as a means of worship, that Enoch reminds us to trust God as a way of life, that he lived for 365 years and was faithful to God through most of those. Uh, we talked about Noah uh, trusting God when, when obeying doesn't make sense to others. Um, that he would have been ridiculed for what he was doing. Uh, Abraham and Sarah trusting God when things seem impossible, when they um, you know, didn't know how God was going to provide all the promises that he was making to them. Based on their age, they kept trusting that God would do so. Uh, the different patriarchs that came after Abraham, trusting God when you have to wait. Moses trusting God when the world is most appealing. Talked about him stepping away from the riches of Egypt. Um, we talked about Israel trusting God when facing your greatest enemies, that um, when they flee and, and cross the Red Sea, when they come to Jericho, some of their greatest enemies, they have to trust that God will protect them and uh, deliver them through those times. Rahab, trusting God when others are doing the wrong thing. Um, and then we also saw some unnamed people that uh, were able to weather risky and dangerous situations. They 
uh, didn't, didn't succumb to the, the pressures of lions or fire. They stayed faithful to God. We saw others who weren't delivered from those type of situations. They were, they were sawn in two. They were beheaded. They were, they were killed for their faith. And uh, both, both categories remind us to trust God um, during those type of situations. So we come to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to read just the first couple of verses to us this morning before we start to work our way through the entire chapter. Uh, Starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a very familiar chapter to us. Um, It's one that um, if you were to Google uh, or, or search on YouTube, you could find countless sermons, countless videos related to this chapter. It's a very popular chapter. You've got the analogy of the Christian life with the race, and so uh, a lot of teaching points, a lot of talking points that can be developed there. And so it's certainly a familiar chapter to us, maybe less familiar as we get into it, uh, but certainly a very familiar chapter. And so today what I really want to do is to try to keep it very basic, very simple, very application-driven Um, because I don't want to muddy the waters with this chapter, because I do believe that it is very practical. I believe there's some very clear application points for us. And so rather than trying to make it too lofty or or loftier than it needs to be, I really want to keep it as simple as possible and and allow us to really draw out some of these application points as we work through the chapter. So um, as far as notes go, it looks lengthy, um, but really I'm just giving you 13 things that, that I think are very clear in this chapter that we are supposed to do as part of our life. Very very practical, application-driven points. Um, And we're not going to spend a ton of time on each one of these because they they don't need to be developed a whole lot. Uh, They're pretty straightforward, I think, from this chapter. And so I want to give that to you, uh, but not, again, I don't want to muddy the waters too much and make it overcomplicated because I do think it's very simple and very practical, some of the things that the author is calling us to do in response to a lot of the theology that he's been giving us in this chapter. We've talked a ton about the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, the, the priesthood of Jesus, the, uh, the Melchizedek order, and so a lot of heavier type things that we've talked about today should be uh, practically driven from all of that, that loftier type talk. All right, so Hebrews chapter 12, summary sentence for us today. Understanding that countless others have run a faithful life, we too must lay aside every hindrance, keeping our focus on our future joy with Christ, which will allow us to endure hardships and produce peace and holiness. Understanding that countless others have run a faithful life, we too must lay aside every hindrance, keeping our focus on our future joy with Christ, which will allow us to endure hardships and produce peace and holiness. For our kids, the Christian life is like a race, and for us to win, we have to run when it feels hard, and we have to avoid things that will trip us up. This chapter begins with a reminder of what we just studied in chapter 11, that countless people have already done this, countless people have already run the Christian life, countless people have won that race. And because of that, we too need to keep running our race. And in order to do that effectively, we lay aside every hindrance, we keep our focus on our future joy with Christ. And if we're doing that effectively, if we're doing that faithfully, we will be able to press through hardships and that our life will produce peace and holiness, which is a desire that God has for his children that we'll see in this chapter. Okay, um, this, this topic of endurance is certainly a key point of this chapter. We've been talking about it throughout uh, Hebrews, but it certainly pops up again here in chapter 12 and is an uh, important focal point of the chapter. 
um, that we need to keep pressing on, even when we feel like giving up, um, that we have a responsibility to endure until the very end. Um, We also see in this chapter that struggle against sin and hardship uh, pops up again. Um, These are two things that we've talked about throughout the, the book of Hebrews that we don't, we don't fall away from Jesus when things get hard, and we don't fall away from Jesus when things get tempting. Um, that there's, there's nothing better than Jesus in this world. That Jesus is the supreme, the supreme being, and he is um, our, our supreme joy. And so there isn't anything better that this world offers. He's the creator of this world, right? And, and we certainly don't run away from him when we feel like things are getting hard, and, and we may get frustrated with our circumstances because he's the one that carries us through those times. And so um, the struggle against sin and hardship is seen again in this chapter. We don't abandon Jesus in these times. And then I think also we note in this chapter that knowing God's word is essential for survival. He, um, the author re- rebukes them in regards to their understanding of God's discipline. In verse 5 it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And so the author is trying to make a point here at the beginning of chapter 12 and he has to revert to quoting the Old Testament as a reminder, the implication being they have forgotten this previous teaching, right? And so it's a reminder to us that knowing God's word is essential for our spiritual survival, not just so that we can recall verses or, or spit out uh, topics or spit out uh, knowledge of God's word. It's, it's the filter that we use for everything that comes into our life. So the way that we survive spiritually is to know God's word so that when circumstances come our way, we filter it through God's word and we don't react wrongly to it, right? Like these people seem to be um, responding to discipline in their life, less than desirable circumstances in their life with questions about God's love, right? So as things start to press in on them, right, they're Their property is being plundered, and some of them are going to jail for their faith. Things we saw in chapter 10. ten. And initially, they're responding well to those things because he highlights it. He says, remember when you were first enlightened and how you did these things and how you weathered these things and how you responded to these things. You allowed your property to be plundered joyfully. You, You very graciously and willingly visited your friends in jail who were placed there for their faith. But now they're in danger of falling away because these things aren't getting better, they're getting worse, right? And, and we know that as, and we, and we think that this is possibly people who are, who are originally reading this are possibly people living near Rome. And so the persecution only increases from the time this book was first written. So things are getting harder versus better. And so at first they were filtering this stuff great, you know, like, hey, let's keep doing this, let's keep enduring, let's keep pressing on. And as things continue to get harder, they're starting to wear down a little bit, right? And so now they're starting to question God's goodness, they're starting to question whether or not God loves them. And so the author says, man, have you forgotten what Scripture previously taught you in the Old Testament? And so he has to draw out that filter again, and he says, look, this is how God works, this is how God functions, this is how God treats his children, So for us, our spiritual survival is absolutely tied to our knowledge of God's word. We have to use that as a filter for everything that comes into our life, okay? So we'll see that as we work through uh, chapter 12 here. All right, so let's jump right in. Again, I've got 13 things that I want you to jot down today, things that I think are very practical from this chapter. Number one, keep in mind that past runners finished faithfully. Keep in mind that past runners finished faithfully. 
He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which so clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The witnesses that are here are absolutely the people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. And they are put there to inform us that God can see us through anything, right? So sometimes we get this picture that we're running in a stadium and we've got these other Old Testament people just kind of surrounding us like spectators cheering us on. And and that may be a, a piece of what's going on here, but really what we have here are people who are at the finish line who have already made it who kind of stand there as a, as a demonstration or as proof that this whole thing is possible, that, that we're, not, we're not pitching something that's theory only, that somebody can actually walk through the Christian life and live faithfully to God and say no to sin and, and live in the Spirit and not yield to their flesh. What we're saying is that there's a whole host of countless people who have done that, particularly in the Old Testament, people that are being highlighted here who, again, don't even have the same advantages that we have today, right? Like we've talked about the differences in how the Holy Spirit uh, works in us in in ways that he didn't work in the Old Testament. We've talked about the the new covenant and the, the, the cleared conscience that comes from the work of Jesus. The Old Testament people were still trying to grasp and understand because it hadn't occurred yet. So, not only do they stand there as a testimony that it's possible to, to make it to the end and to endure and to not fall away, they did it without all the advantages that we have, right? And so they stand there as a testimony, as a witness to us that God can see us through anything. If they finish faithfully, we can too. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 is another reminder of this. And this is where I would say, while we've moved from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, we don't abandon the Old Testament because the Old Testament still serves as such an encouragement to us, as such an extension of hope to us. Romans fifteen four tells us that. It says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul is telling the people in Rome here that, man, the the Old Testament serves as such an encouragement to us, such a token of hope to us for our own endurance. It's written for our instruction. So we certainly don't cast away the Old Testament. We don't want to come out of our study of Hebrews thinking, okay, Old Covenant wasn't near as good as the New Covenant, therefore we don't need the Old Testament. Man, we absolutely need what's contained in the Old Testament because it reminds us, it reminds us that, that people have done this before us that they've, they've succeeded in living faithfully. Paul's another example that, that moves us into the New Testament of one who, who demonstrates what it looks like to live faithfully, to make it to the end. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As Paul comes in the end of his life, he talks about how he has fought the good fight. He has finished the race. He has kept the faith. And so as we come out of our study in Hebrews here very shortly, and, and we've, we've learned that we have a responsibility to endure, to not fall away, to not apostatize, to keep holding fast, right? We need to remind ourselves a lot of other people have already done this, right? 
we're not going to be the first to do this. We're not, we're not breaking any records. We're not setting any new standards. We're simply coming behind other people who have done this before us. Okay, so keep in mind that past runners have already finished faithfully, and that should spur us on. It should give us hope that this is certainly absolutely possible for us to do as well. All right, back in Hebrews chapter 12, we see point number two, that we need to lay aside anything that doesn't help our faith. We need to lay aside anything that doesn't help our faith. It says, let us lay aside or let us also lay aside every weight so that we can run with endurance. Lay aside anything that doesn't help your faith. For our kids, we need to drop things that don't help us run. We need to drop things that don't help us run. Think about this. If somebody challenges you to a race, um, oftentimes you're going to immediately start to empty your pockets, uh, anything that you had in your hands, you probably want to set aside. Like, if I'm going to race somebody, I'm probably going to take my wallet out, my cell phone out. Like, I don't want anything to distract me when I'm engaging in this activity, right? Like, I want to remove all the distractions. I want to limit anything that would kind of hold me back. Um, not bad things, right? Just things that aren't appropriate for the race that I'm about to engage in. That's what the idea is, is here that the author is calling us to, to lay aside anything that doesn't help your faith, to remove anything, even good things, if it isn't, if it isn't helping your spiritual progress, to strip off the weights, to strip off any extra clothing, if we're thinking in terms of the race, to remove it, to get rid of it, uh, because it may hinder you. It, 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 may, it may hold you back. I remember um, when I was coaching middle school football, we were, uh, it was my second year coaching, and we were going up against a team that we had previously lost to and, and really felt like we had a good game plan to, to beat this team the second time around. We're playing in the championship game. We're playing on their field. And the mistake that I had made in the first game is that I really hadn't given the ball to our best player enough. Um, I had tried to spread it around, and, and by, the, by the end of the game, I kind of stood back and looked at the stats and realized, man, part of the reason we lost this game is we didn't give the ball to our best player. So I was committed going into this game we're going to give the ball to our best player. He hasn't let us down all year. Um, he always comes through, right? And I remember in the pregame of, the, of, the, of that game, I remember thinking to myself, why is he wearing this, this baggy white undershirt under his jersey? And I, and I made a mental note. I said, he hasn't worn that all year, right? Like, and it wasn't extremely cold that night. I was still coaching in shorts. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a frigid night. And maybe it was for looks. I don't know. I just remember thinking in pregame, man, I wonder why he's changed up his, his attire, his wardrobe for tonight. And by the end of the game, I was frustrated because I realized he fumbled three times in the championship game, and he had not fumbled all year, and it was partly due to this excess clothing that he had underneath that, that, that hindered the way that he carried the ball. He had been carrying the ball one way the entire season, and he changed his wardrobe for that night, and he carried the ball differently and couldn't secure the ball in, same, in the same way that he had done previously, and it cost us the game in some ways. He, he, he was not protective of the ball as he had been previously. Nothing wrong with the shirt, right? Just maybe not most appropriate uh, for that night. Fast forward to this year, okay? I'm in charge of running backs, 
And as the, as the air starts to cool a little bit, my running back comes out, and I, and I felt like he had borrowed the exact same shirt from this kid, right? Like, we come out in pregames, and the kid comes out, and, like, it's like this big, flowy, white undershirt. And, like, we're in a day and age where everybody's wearing Under Armour. Everybody wants this as tight as possible. I mean, we had a donor this year that bought brand-new jerseys for our football team, right? Like, brand-new spanking jerseys for our football team. Our kids put them on and, and complained to our coach and said they're not tight enough. They're too loose. We're going to get tackled, and they refused to wear them. And so, like, we've never worn these brand-new jerseys because everybody revolted and said, absolutely not, we'll, we'll turn the ball over, right? So we live in a day and age where everybody wants it tight. Well, not my running back. My running back comes out this game, and he's got big flowy white shirt on. And I told him, I said, buddy, you were on that team. Do you remember that night? I said, the kid fumbled three times. No, coach, that's not me. That's not me, right? We play this night, this season. Kid fumbles the ball. Hadn't fumbled the ball previously. Fumbles the ball. He comes off the field. I said, get the shirt off. Take that shirt off. Like, it's not appropriate. Like, it doesn't help you in what we're trying to do here. That's what the author's point is here. Hey, it may not be a bad thing. It just may not be appropriate for what we're trying to accomplish, right? So he says, drop it, get rid of it, whatever it is that's holding you back or not helpful to you. Now, this is where we have to kind of work through and filter it because what may not be helpful for you may be helpful for me, right? So we're not talking about sinful things here. So it's not as clear cut and dry as we might would like for it to be. It's not a black and white thing here. He's saying anything that holds you back, you have to let go of it. Right, And so we have to kind of filter and evaluate what is good and not good for our life, and that may look different, right? I told you this year, I had to step away from some of my coaching responsibilities because it wasn't good for me. It was hindering me. It was holding me back in my race. Other people took on more coaching responsibilities this year because it's not holding them back. It's not a hindrance for them. So what was not good for me, absolutely good for somebody else. And that can also be vice versa. Something that's good for me might not be good for somebody else, right? And so we have to evaluate things in our life that's relationships, that's hobbies, that's places that we go, things that we engage in. If they're not helpful to our race, they probably need to be dropped, right? Even if it's not a sinful thing, and I love the way that that John Piper highlights that, it's not a question of is it sinful. The appropriate question, the higher level question is, is it helpful? Is it helping me run, right? And so the author says, if it's not helping you run, you need to remove it, right? And this is probably something that we have to regular, regularly evaluate because maybe something is helpful to us earlier in our life and then it becomes not as helpful later. Or maybe something was a hindrance earlier in our life and maybe it does become helpful later, right? So this isn't a one-time thing, get rid of it or keep it. It's something that we're having to ongoingly evaluate in our race. If it's helpful, keep it. If it's not helpful, get rid of it, okay? Choice isn't about good and bad, but it's about better and best. It's the only way to run the race well is if we're doing this type of eval, all right? Number three, remove the sin that keeps tripping you up. Remove the sin that keeps tripping you up. So he says, let us lay aside every weight, And let us lay aside the sin which clings so closely. Why? So that we can run the race with endurance that's set before us. Remove the sin that keeps tripping you up. It's a reminder to us that sin is a real threat that we have to contend with. 
Some of your translations may uh, reference it as a besetting sin. And I think the idea that's going on here is that all of us have sins that we're more likely to commit based on experience, based on personalities, based on interests, based on things that are tempting to us that may not be tempting to others. So I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, could sit back and say, here are some of my, here are some of my major struggles, right? And like, this, this wasn't going to be a discussion question in, in our groups in th- this morning, because I know that that would put everybody kind of on the spot. But if we were to have that discussion question, if we kind of went around and everybody said, here's my besetting sins, here are the ones that I'm most likely to commit, or here are the ones that I struggle with most, you might hear somebody saying things that you're like, no, that's not, that's not really a struggle for me. Not that I'm perfect in that area, but, but honestly, I don't battle with that in the same way that person is describing it right? I think we're different in that aspect in that some of us are more likely to commit some sins than others. And some of us maybe have that, that one or two sins that, that really seems to cling closely to us uh, in a special way. Very tempting, very hard to overcome. I think that's the one that he's talking about here. That's the one that's really tripping us up and holding us back in our race. And, he, and he's, he's, in, he's in admonishing us, encouraging us. I mean, you've really got to push back hard against that sin that's, that's prone to trip you up, that's prone to cling very closely to you. So I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what sins are, am I most likely to commit and what am I doing to push back against it? We all have these type of sins and it's not okay to keep them in our life. If we don't throw them off, we may very well not endure to the very end. We may not finish our race well if we don't do something about those sins that cling so closely to us. Matthew 5, 29 through 30 is that passage where, where Jesus is you know, admonishing his disciples, man, if you need to, if your hand's a problem, cut it off, right? Like if your eyes are problems, cut them out. Whatever it takes to run your race well, do it. Man, are hands good? Yeah, absolutely. For some people, they may not be good, right? And that's the extreme example, right? But the the point that he's trying to make is there are some things that are morally neutral that if you can't control them in your life, you need to rid yourself of them, right? So lay aside the hindrances, get rid of that sin that clings so closely to you, run that race with endurance that is set before you. All right, for our kids, we need to avoid sin because it will trip us up. Number four, accept the race that you are called to. For our kids, run the race that God gives you. Accept the race, whatever that looks like, that God has called you to. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I think this is just a, a chance for us to just pause and remind ourselves that a lot of times our races look different. Our circumstances that God gives to us, I mean, they're just different. There's some things that you're going to have to travel through and work through and deal with in your family that my family may never have to address. And your race is going to look different than my race. There's things that I'm going to have to weather. There's things that I'm going to have to endure that you may never have to experience. It's just a reminder to us that, man, it doesn't mean that, that we need to be jealous of other people's races or, or covet other people's races or, or compare ourselves to other people's races. We need to run the race that God has put before us and to run it well and to run it with endurance. All right, number five, focus on Jesus as the example of faith. For our kids, Jesus helps us run. As important as those Old Testament heroes are, 
that's not who we're told to keep our eyes on, right? Like they, they serve as a great reminder to us. They serve as a great example to us that we can do this. We can finish well because others have finished well. But we don't keep our eyes on Moses, right? Like we don't need to uh, devote so much time and attention to these heroes of the Old Testament as though they are the ones that sustain us in our, in our race. Because the author reminds us it's looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the one that we keep our eyes on. He is described in two ways here. He's described as the founder and as the perfecter of our faith. What does that inform us about? One, it tells us that, that, that Jesus is the initiator or the creator of our faith right? Like we don't come, we don't come to God on our own. We know the Holy Spirit has to draw us and convict us. And so the, the, the work of Jesus in our life, the work of God in our life is to basically create the faith in us. So, so Jesus is the creator of our faith. He's the object of our faith. So the, the reason that we would even express any type of trust is because of Jesus, right? So he's the creator. He's the initiator of our faith. And then he's described as the perfecter of our faith too, meaning that he's the one who completes that work that he starts, that Philippians talks about, right? So Paul says he starts a good work, he finishes a good work. So not only does Jesus create faith in us, he perfects that faith. He keeps it going, um, he keeps it maturing. And as we're gonna see in this chapter, God does whatever necessary to mature us in our faith, even if that's in the form of discipline. So we keep our eyes on Jesus, we focus on him as our example of faith, Jesus sets a great example for us from an earthly standpoint. He comes, he lives in obedience to his father, he endures suffering, right? And he shows us really how to do that. And that's what we'll we'll see in number six here. Number six, find motivation to endure by looking to the future. Find motivation to endure by looking to the future, right? So we all can get this message that life is like a race and, and we have to keep enduring and we have to keep pushing forward and we have to keep running. And the analogy is certainly true that, man, at times it's very tiring to do that, right? At, at times it's difficult to do that. At times the hills seem very long and tall and, and exhausting. And so how do we keep going when times are tough, how do we keep going when we are starting to grow weary and we are starting to, to just grow tired in the Christian life? Jesus gives us the example of what we do. It says that who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God now. We find the motivation to endure by looking to the future. For our kids, we keep our eyes on the finish line. What we have described here is that Jesus knew the future would validate his present, right? Jesus is able to endure the Garden of Gethsemane. He's able to endure the, the persecution leading up to the crucifixion. He's able to endure the crucifixion. He's able to endure his father turning his back on him. He's able to endure the weight of sin on the cross. Why? Because he knows what comes after that, right? Like he's able to push forward because he can see his resurrection. He can see his exaltation. He can see himself being placed at the right hand of his father and all of his enemies coming under his feet, right? So as he's praying heavily in the garden of Gethsemane and he knows that the next few days are going to be very, very difficult for him, he's able to weather that. He's able to endure that because he keeps his eyes set on what comes after that, 
right? So for us as believers, it's the same principle, right? We endure things that are difficult in this life, knowing that our life is very short, and the experiences that are difficult are oftentimes very short in the grand scheme of things as well. We push through those things. We have faith through those times because we keep our eyes set on what comes down the road. Maybe not in this life, but in the life to come. And so that's the, that's the picture that we get from Jesus here. He's the, uh, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith because he sets this great example for us that we, we endure by looking for the joy that comes after the fact. And we see the Old Testament heroes doing something similar. If you back up to um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, what we saw last week with Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Man, I don't know how many of us would have made the same decision that Moses did. I mean, you're sitting in luxury, luxury and comfort. You've got your entire life ahead of you. From a worldly standpoint, success is just knocking at your door. And, and you're potentially going to be the leader of the, of the great empire of that time. And you say, you know what, I'm going to step away from this. I, I, I'm just going to give this up. And, and I'm going to do something different. And not something different good, something different bad, right? Like, like I'm going to go from, from greatness to being a slave, right? For, for those that, and I use football analogies a lot because just, it just resonates with me, but, but there was a guy named Barry Sanders who was one of the great running backs of all time, and he walked away from football when he was one of the greatest of all time and still had many years left to play. But he didn't walk away and become like a slave, Right? Like, like he could have kept playing football, kept making riches, and kept enjoying the fame. He just went into retirement and enjoyed all the money he had already made. Right? Like he just didn't have to work hard anymore. He didn't have to go to practice. He didn't have to, he didn't have to get hit anymore. So he exchanged something great for something still pretty great. That's not what Moses did. Moses walks away from something great earthly standpoint and walks like into like bad standpoint from an earthly perspective. Why? Because he says, you know what? I'm going to endure this for the time being because what's coming down the road is far greater than anything Egypt could offer in my life. So he says, I'll endure this bad stuff now because I know it's an investment in the future and what, I, what comes in the future is far greater than anything this world can offer. Old Testament heroes show us this same principle. Even the people that were reading this book had this perspective too, though. They were starting to drift from it, but in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Right? He says, you guys already know this perspective because you've already been doing it. You know that what's coming is better than anything right now. And so you can endure anything bad right now knowing how great the future is going to be. That's our, that's our principle for how we make it through things now. We keep our eyes set on the future, the good that is to come. Okay? Um, number seven. Maintain perspective that others have endured harder times than you. And we probably all need to be reminded of this because it's easy to grow discouraged and to grow weary thinking that we have 
reached unique status in God's kingdom, and we are bearing a weight that nobody else has ever had to bear. It says in verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The author is reminding us that Jesus and even others in the Old Testament had endured obedience to the point of dying for it. Their, their, Their blood had been shed for it. And the implication here is that the Hebrew people here reading this this book, they they didn't have a martyr amongst them yet. That persecution hadn't progressed yet to where anybody had had to lose their life. They'd had stuff stolen from them. Some of them had ended up in prison, neither of which are desirable, but nobody had yet died for their faith. And so the author is trying to hit home with them and says, Man, don't think you guys have it worse than anybody else because you haven't even actually made it to the worst case, which would be to lose your life. Like nobody has shed their blood for obedience yet. Nobody has had to endure so much that it cost them their life. So I told you last week, um, you aren't the first person to go through what you're going through. Like others have gone through similar things that you've gone through and they made it, right? So I told you last week, you're not the first person to lose your job. You're not the first person to lose a loved one. You're not the first person to have to go through a divorce. You're not the first person to have a miscarriage. You're not the first person to go through any of the trials that some of us have had to go through. Other Christians have done it and other Christians have made it, right? Which is, which is fantastic hope for us because we can hear these stories and we can talk to other people and know we can make it too. But let's take it another step further. Like, Not only are you not the first person to go through what you're going through, other people have gone through worse things than you're going through and have also made it, right? Like like that should give us even greater hope, but also um, kind of a kick in the pants too, right? Like it could be worse. Other people have had worse and they've made it, right? So none of us are going through something right now that would give us cause to say, I'm kind of an exception here, right? Like what I'm dealing with is far worse and far different than what anybody else is going through. Because unless I'm unfamiliar with the situation, nobody has endured to the point of death for their faith within our church, right? So the author is saying, man, I get it that it's hard. I get it that it's tough. I get that your circumstances are are difficult for you. But he says, man, here's the good thing. Other people have weathered those same type of situations and some have even weathered worse situations and they kept trusting, they kept demonstrating faith, they kept running their race and they made it. They made it, right? And so, man, it's it's helpful for us to maintain this perspective that not only have others gone through what we're going through, others have gone through worse than we're going through and they made it on the other side. And how did they do it? How did they do it? They kept their eyes set on the future. Just like Jesus, there's this future joy that was to come after his suffering. They kept their eyes set on the future as well. All right? Um, for our kids, if we didn't get that, the race is not too hard for you. Not too hard for you. 
All right, number eight, embrace discipline as God's proof of loving you. Embrace discipline as God's proof of loving you. For our kids, when God disciplines us, it means he loves us. And so the author here is tying to their experience of difficulty to the concept of God's discipline. And so this is where we have to kind of step back and and remind ourselves that discipline doesn't strictly mean um, a response to wrongdoing, right? Because what he's describing here is just difficult situations that may or may not be tied to sinful stuff, just things that they're having to weather, things they're having to go through. And so he challenges them and says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you've had to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Man, there's a lot of good content here. A lot of good content about this particular point, that we need to embrace discipline as God's proof of loving us. Their dullness had caused them to forget this teaching. And this teaching comes from Proverbs chapter 3. There's also another passage, Proverbs 13, 24, that talks about this similar idea, that, that, that um, a sign of, of a father disciplining his son is a sign of love, right? So we don't need to scorn it. We need to be thankful for it. And I told you earlier, Satan wants us to believe that this is a sign that he doesn't love us. Man, if God loved us, he wouldn't be letting us go through something like this. Whereas scripture says the exact opposite. Because God is giving us something like this, it must mean that he loves us. Discipline is a mark of sonship. Earthly fathers discipline their children. Right? Like it's, it's the father or the mother's responsibility to discipline their children, not somebody else's job. Right? It's a sign of sonship. And that's what the the passage is saying here is that if you're being disciplined by God, if you're having to go through difficulties, it's a sign that he loves you. It's a sign that he cares for you. If you weren't going through these things, that would be the cause for concern, right? There's different types of discipline. There's corrective discipline. We know that David went through that with his um, (coughs) situation with Bathsheba. We know that he bore some of the consequences of that choice, right? That God brought some corrective discipline into his life. Lost his child with Bathsheba began to experience conflict within his family uh, as a result of some of that, right? We know the church in Corinth uh, got some corrective discipline for how they were misusing the Lord's Supper, and some were even becoming sick and dying from the misuse of that. So there's corrective discipline for sure. There's also preventative discipline that's described in Scripture. That's things that, that, uh, that God would put in place that protects his children from committing sin right? Let's think about that in terms of earthly fathers so that we can help see that we do preventative discipline too, right? These are the type of things that your kid thinks you're doing to punish them, and you're having to remind them, this isn't punishment. This is something good for you to protect you. Can anybody think of an example of preventative discipline from an earthly parent to their child that a kid might think is punishment, but it's actually meant to protect them from 
something harmful. Yeah, we may shape the type of kids that our, our kids are allowed to spend time with, and our kids may not understand this because it feels like, like corrective discipline. It feels like something bad has happened, and you're punishing, punishing me for something, whereas our perspective is, now this is more preventative, right? If we, if we tell our kid they can't have a cell phone until they're a certain age, a lot of kids today, because their friends are going to have cell phones maybe at a much earlier age, feel like that's some type of punishment for why can't I have one if everybody else can, right? But from our perspective, I'm not punishing you. I'm trying to protect you so I don't have to punish you, right? Like, like I'm trying to guard you from something that could be very harmful, right? And so I'm preventing maybe some bigger issues by putting in this discipline, this, this, this teaching tool to protect you. Um, same might be true for uh, the dating piece. Like I get this in, in the middle school level because some kids are now starting to be allowed to have girlfriends and boyfriends and, and others are still told they can't, right? And, and they very quickly label their parents as punishing them for something that everybody else is allowed to do, right? But it's more of a preventative thing. It's more of a protective type thing. Paul had this in his life, right? Paul says, I've got this thorn in my flesh and I'm praying that God will take it away. And, and what, what was the response that he got from God? That no, I'm, I'm protecting you from becoming conceited, right? Like I see a greater sin that could occur in your life, so I've put this thing in your life to keep you from being guilty of that sin. That's what we call preventative discipline. There's also a, a type of educational discipline that Job had to go through, right? Like he just had to bear through some really difficult stuff. And what happens on the backside of it? He says, man, I just know God better from all of this, right? Like he says, I used to have lived in a state where I'd heard about you, and now I've seen you. Like, you've carried me through this, and I know you better as a result of these difficult circumstances. All of that falls under this umbrella of discipline. It's not always that we've done something wrong, so we don't want to make the mistake of, man, if I'm in a car wreck or if I find I have an illness, it's like, what sin did I commit to bring this about me? There may be something that needs to be confessed, and God's trying to get your attention. Because here's the thing, if, if you can live with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or you can be involved in certain types of sins that are more of a habitual type lifestyle and nothing is happening, man, I would raise some red flags and say, where is the discipline at, right? Because if you're a legitimate son, God won't let those things go unchecked. But it doesn't mean that we raise red flags every time we're going through a difficult situation because it may be preventative. There may be some things that God is protecting us from and therefore causing us to go through some things. There may be some things that God simply wants us to teach, wants to teach us, like Job. And so he has us going through some things. All of that is discipline. All of it is a sign that God loves us, right? Is it a, is it a good thing for us to know God more? Absolutely. Even if we have to go through some bad stuff, yeah, absolutely. Right, like I told you last week, our, our, our buddy uh, Tanner, who was in the car wreck, he's like, I wouldn't go back and change the car wreck. I'm a different person now because of it. Right, like it was a difficult thing, and, and I don't know if he had sin in his life or not. It may have just been an educational thing, right? Maybe a preventative thing. But it certainly seems to be some level of discipline that God says, you know what, I love you. And I don't want you to continue on the course that you're on. I want to I I change some things in your life right? Um, earthly fathers deserve our respect because they've disciplined. Author highlights this, but here's the thing. Earthly fathers do it with limited knowledge and with a limited ability to create the result that they want, right? Like I can discipline my kids correctively, preventatively, 
in hopes of generating a result. And I should get respect for that from my kids. The author says that. But what's great about our Father in heaven is that he's perfect in the type of discipline that he issues. Like he's, not, he's not just doing his best educated guess at it. And he's fully capable of generating the results that he wants, right? Because the result of discipline here, it seems painful, but what does it yield later? Peaceful fruit of righteousness. God gets the results that he wants from his discipline, which is another reason we should embrace it. It's a proof that God loves us. And man, what a great thing to know that it will produce the things that God wants in us as well. He always disciplines for our good. He always gets a good outcome from it. Therefore, we can embrace it as a sign of his love for us. All right, number nine, get your second wind by remembering these truths. For our kids, keep running even when you get tired. That's the next part of this chapter. It says, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The idea is here is more of like a weary runner, right? It's somebody who's, who's starting to, to lag a little bit, right? And I think the picture here is kind of what you would have with like your coach coming alongside the star player and having him pick it up a little bit, right? Like, like you're capable of more than what you're giving me right now, right? So you have this, this, this universal picture of, of, of kind of a lagging individual here, the drooping hands, the, the weak knees, somebody who's not progressing as much as they could be progressing, right? It, it conjures up images of that iconic movie scene for me from Facing the Giants where his star player was not really giving best effort in practice. And so what does he do? He has the kid kind of get on his back and he's going to do that death crawl, but he puts the blindfolds and, and so he thinks he's done, thinks he can't go anymore, right? But the coach keeps, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And he ends up going the entire football field, right? Like that's the picture here. It's, it's pick yourself up. Let's do this. Let's get back in the game and let's keep running hard. It says to make the path straight. The idea here is to reestablish yourself, remove any obstacles, and reduce sin's ability to ensnare you. Make the path as straight as possible. Ryan, who comes and preaches here sometimes, a cross-country coach, they do this before every cross-country race. They show up early, and they walk the entire trail. They walk the entire trail. They clear off anything that would be a hindrance, right? Because cross-country is not like running around a track. I mean, you're running through the woods, and you're running through uh, different types of obstacles. And so they walk the track before they ever run it. They clear rocks. They clear limbs. They want that thing to be as smooth as possible, right? The same is true for us in our Christian life. How do we do that? Well, one way that we can make our path as straight as possible to try to get a little heads up of what's coming, man, that's to talk to other people who've been there before us. That's one of the reasons that we think marital counseling is so important from a Christian standpoint. Like, why approach something that is going to be one of the greatest joys that this earth can offer, but also one of the greatest difficulties when you bring two sinful people to live together, right? There are lessons to be learned, lessons to be learned that others have already learned, mistakes that have already been made that can be avoided, right? So he says, make straight your paths as much as possible. Remove as many snares as you can in your walk, in your run, okay? Number 10, Strive for peace and holiness in your relationships. 
This is verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which uh, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. All right, so we're told to pursue peace. Notice it doesn't say attain peace with everyone, but to pursue it should always be something that we're striving for, even if we can't make it happen with everyone. Romans 12, 18 tells us the same thing, to live at peace as much as possible with people, to pursue it with everyone, not just those that we like, to pursue holiness, which is an idea of separation here. We're to pursue these things in our race. And I think from the peace standpoint, it means anticipating what it takes to keep peace as much as it means fixing things that are no longer peaceful, right? Like, I think one of the things that we can do is we can anticipate what would cause a lack of peace potentially with somebody and avoid that altogether versus always having to react and fix situations. He says, strive for peace and holiness in your relationships. Number 11, keep confessing sin, experience God's grace, and avoid bitterness. Keep confessing sin, experience God's grace, and avoid bitterness. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Well, when would you need the grace of God? Well, you need the grace of God in the midst of your sin, right? So we, we confess sin to gain the grace of God, right? So we, we want to keep confessing sin so that we can experience God's grace and therefore avoid bitterness. So there's two ideas here. Don't miss out on grace by harboring sin. Come get the grace and forgiveness that's due you, right? Come approach the throne of grace with confidence, that God's ready to forgive. But how do we avoid bitterness? Well, we need to be ready to extend forgiveness to others, right? Bitterness means that we haven't forgiven something. So the type of forgiveness that we enjoy is the same type of forgiveness we should give to others. For our kids, be forgiven and be forgiving. We want to get forgiveness from God, and then we want to forgive other people to avoid bitterness in our own life. Number 12, don't forfeit the future for the pleasures of the present. For our kids, don't settle for less than God's best. Don't forfeit the future for the pleasures of the present. That's what happens with Esau. That's what happens with Esau, right? Like Esau stops running his race. Why? So that he can satisfy his physical appetite. It says, um, don't become defiled so that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. I put this in my notes. Don't live to satisfy an earthly body that won't last. That's a bad investment, right? Like don't forfeit the future to satisfy a physical body that doesn't last. Philippians 3, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's perspective. You skip down to verse 17, he says, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Why? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They're they're, they're seeking physical satisfaction in a body that doesn't last because Paul goes on to say our citizenship's in heaven we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
man, don't forfeit the future for some immediate gratification with this physical body. Because whatever gratification you get from this physical body, it doesn't last. This body doesn't last. Don't forfeit the future and invest in something that is passing away. The strong reminder here is that we can't always reverse our past decisions. Esau regrets or seeks repentance with tears, but he can't change the outcome of his choice. Sometimes people get hung up on this chapter and they think, man, was Esau trying to repent of his sins and God told him no? That's not the case. What was he trying to repent of? His bad decision, right? Like he wanted the blessing back. You go to Genesis chapter 27, you don't get any attitude of repentance there, right? Like he's crying. That's where the tears were. He's crying before his father about how mad he is at himself for the bad decision that he made. And then what's his response? It says he hated Jacob and he wanted to kill Jacob, right? This isn't Esau saying, God, forgive me for being so silly in my choices. It's I want to change what I did and you're telling me that I can't, so I'm going to kill somebody for it. So we don't have Esau trying to become a Christian here, right? The, the, the strong reminder to us is that we can't always reverse our bad decisions, our past decisions, so we need to be very careful. Don't forfeit the future for the pleasures of the present. And then lastly, number 13, let the new covenant truths guide your living. Let the new covenant truths guide your living. The last section here of Hebrews chapter 12 is describing that old covenant and new covenant once again. It says, you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, the voice whose words made the hearers beg. Even a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The image that's being portrayed there is Mount Sinai and the law being given and God's holiness being demonstrated there. And the whole idea you couldn't touch the mountain, God wasn't approachable, right? That whole veiled old covenant. What does he say? Uh, verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels. He says, you've come to something better. Verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. God has become approachable in the new covenant. We don't need to go back to Sinai. We don't need to go back to that old covenant. There's a great picture in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is kind of diverted back to Mount Sinai by worldly wise men. He says, go, go meet Mr. Legality on, on Mount Sinai, basically. And so you have this picture of Christian like walking up Sinai and he's got that, that image again where there's thunder and lightning and like it's a, it's a horrific type scene. An evangelist shows up and is like, what are you doing? Like, like we're going to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. Like, Sinai's been done with. Jesus fulfilled that, right? That's the picture here at the end of Hebrews 12. Don't go back to the old. Keep pressing on into the new. Then, at the end of chapter 12, the idea is that God is going to shake the earth again, and we saw this when we studied Revelation. God's going to shake the earth, and everything's going to be shaking around us, but it's us that cannot be shaken, right? Verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. A lot of application in this chapter. I want to leave you with three questions to ask yourself as we close. First of all, is there any harboring of sin or hindrances in your life that you need to address when it comes to running your race? Right? Like we want to keep in mind that a lot of people have already done this before, so we can definitely do it. But if we're going to definitely do it, we got to lay aside sin and we got to lay aside the extra stuff that would hold us back in our run. 
Is there any lack of peace that you need to pursue in your life? And that just jumps out of the page to me that we're supposed to have this peace of righteousness being produced in our life. We need to be pursuing peace with others. It's something that's supposed to characterize us as Christians. As you're running your race, is there anybody that you need to go seek peace with? Now, there may be people in your life that you don't have peace with, but you've done all the seeking that you can with that. It doesn't say you have to attain peace with everybody. It says that you have to do your part to seek it with everybody. Is there anybody that you haven't done your part with yet to seek peace? And then lastly, is there any attitude that needs to be adjusted with you, particularly in reference to this idea of the discipline? Is there any part of you that is resentful towards what God is is bringing you into right now? Anything that you would say, man, I am frustrated with God or I am questioning God's goodness because of what I'm having to walk through right now. Because it's probably a sign that God loves you, that he's bringing you through that thing. Man, don't resent it. Don't scorn it. Embrace it as a sign of sonship or or daughtership that, that God loves you. And God wants what's best for you. Some of our attitudes may need to be adjusted with that, right? So I want to leave those three questions with you as a, as a point of how to apply all of this application um, that I've given to you today, all right? From a family worship standpoint, um, last chapter, Hebrews chapter 13, encourage you to read that and, and look through that. Think about the things that are clear. Think about the things that aren't as clear and come ready to learn next week as we work through and finish our study in the book of Hebrews. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for um, just the, the, the earthly analogies that we have to better understand deep spiritual truths. Um, God, we certainly understand what a race looks like, and we certainly understand the, the difficulties that come with running and the challenges that come with running, but we certainly also understand the picture of great joy in watching somebody finish the, the, the race somebody who crosses that finish line. We know the joy and the, the comfort and the peace that comes from that. And so God, we, we pray that you would help us to, um, help us to, to really uh, allow that to resonate with, with our own personal runs right now. God, help us to understand that while things are difficult, that it's, it's a sign that you love us, that you're carrying us through those difficulties. So God, help us to lay aside any hindrances, any sins that are holding us back in our run. God, help us to pursue peace with people that you've placed in our life. God, I pray that we would um, we'd really be faithful to hear what you've spoken to us this morning. Help us to keep enduring. Help us to keep pressing on. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.